Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 14. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. The next part of the text is in brackets, but I'll still read it. They were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said this to you? Pick up your pallet and walk. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Let's pray. Our Holy Father in heaven, thank you that we're here this morning at this time. Thank you for this holy time. I thank you, Lord, for every person here. I thank you for your great love for each person here. And I pray, Father, that your will would be accomplished this morning and that you would speak to each one of us. And I thank you for giving us your Son to be our teacher and to be our Savior. And I pray that we would see him this morning, we would hear him this morning, we would understand him this morning. And Lord, we want you to be honored and glorified by how we read and how we listen and how we respond to you. Help us to see, Lord, that what we do with what you have revealed is the most important thing that we can do. And Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, The Most Dangerous Kind of False Hope. The Most Dangerous Kind of False Hope. Now, have you ever had a false hope? Have you ever put your your hope in something, your trust in something, And it proved to be wrong. It proved to be false. I think that it's virtually impossible, and I think you'd agree with me, to go through life in this fallen world and never experience false hope. So how many of you have actually experienced that before? We all know what it's like. Life in a fallen world, unfortunately, is checkered with false hopes, failed expectations, right? Bad surprises, Disappointments. True? Fortunately, not all of these false hopes and these bad surprises are 
very serious. There's a lot of trivial ones as well. They're not all so severe. Uh, If you've ever read the books, which I haven't, or watched the movies, which I have, of Anne of Green Gables, do you remember how Anne of Green Gables really hates having her red hair? And one day she meets a peddler, and the peddler shows her some hair dye, and the peddler promises her that this hair dye will turn your red hair into a beautiful raven black. Remember that? If you haven't seen this movie or read the books, you really need to. They're really good. (laughs) And so she gets so excited about this because she's going to turn her awful red hair into a beautiful raven black. But lo and behold, the the hair dye actually turns her hair green. (laughs) And she's, of course, distressed. And it turned out to be a false hope. She was excited. Somebody made a promise. It didn't come through. Things were worse after that. And we've all experienced stuff like that before, I'm sure. But false hopes, of course, can be so much more serious than something trivial like getting the hair dye wrong. On September 11th, 2001, after the first plane hit the North Tower in New York City, there was about 16 minutes before the second plane would hit the South Tower. And in those 16 minutes, people had to make a decision whether they were going to get out of the the building or whether they were going to stay. And and a lot of people were not sure what to do. Many people left the building. When they saw the other tower in flames, people in the South Tower decided to get out. But unfortunately, a lot of people stayed in the South Tower. They didn't expect another plane to come, right? And there was announcements that were made throughout the building that people should stay because things are under control. Don't panic. Don't run. Everything's going to be fine. And unfortunately, that was also a false hope for many people. They heard the announcement, and they believed that everything was going to be okay, and they lost their lives because they stayed. They, the, the report was false. And so that's a serious false hope, the loss of life. It's the opinion of some people that false hope is better than no hope at all. Have you ever heard that? It's better to have false hope than no hope at all. But brothers and sisters and friends, that is absolutely not the biblical point of view. There's no place in the Bible where it it would give us the impression that false hope is better than no hope at all. In fact, just read the book of Jeremiah, for example, and see how much what God thinks of false hope. He hates false hope. And the reason is this. This idea that false hope is better than no hope at all ultimately comes from the idea that there is no real hope at all. So if there's no real hope, then why don't we just have false hope? You know, if everything really is bleak, at least let's believe that it's not so bleak. At least let's feel good about it while we perish forever, right? Edgar Allan Poe said that false hope is nicer than no hope at all. And he's certainly true. False hope is nicer than no hope at all, but those aren't our only two options. Amen? According to Scripture, there is real hope. Do you believe that? According to Scripture, there's real hope in all circumstances. Do you believe that? According to Scripture, there's real hope even in the grip of death. Do you believe that? See, there's always real hope. You don't ever need to have false hope. You can always have real hope because the real hope, according to God's word, is God himself. And all false hope simply interferes with our real hope. It just distracts us from what our real hope is. And brothers and sisters, God wants to destroy our false hopes so we can have that true and real hope in him. And in him... There are fulfilled expectations. There are awesome surprises. Amen? And there aren't disappointments. The passage that we've read this morning is about real hope. But what happens when we're talking about real hope, or so often in the Bible when there's real hope that's brought in, it entails the expulsion of false hope. And that's exactly what we see in the passage that we read. I don't know if you noticed that when we read John Five, But we have here Jesus confronting, undermining, and replacing false hope 
with real hope in this story. And I'd like to draw that out this morning as we look at this passage. If you didn't notice that, I hope you will by the end of this. So we'll look at three things. First, we'll look at the sick man's false hope concerning the way of obtaining his cure. So he had a false hope regarding how he'd be cured. We're going to look at that. Secondly, we'll look at the sick man's false hope concerning his soul. And lastly, we'll look at the place of real hope according to the Bible. So first of all, the sick man's false hope concerning the way of obtaining his cure. So before we dive in, let's set the stage here. Chapter 4, if you'll remember, we saw Jesus traveling from Judea, and he's, traveled, he's traveling from Judea to get to Galilee. He passes through Samaria, and there's this wonderful incident that takes place there with the woman at the well, resulting in many people believing in Samaria. But at the end of chapter 4, he arrives in Galilee where we see him perform his second miracle in Galilee. So he performed one miracle there before he went to Judea, which was turning water into wine. And he did a bunch of miracles in Judea. He comes back to Galilee and we see him do one miracle. But notice at the beginning of chapter 5, we're immediately back in Jerusalem. So Jesus arrives in Galilee and John tells us almost, almost nothing about what happens during his stay in Galilee. We're back in Jerusalem. And this movement back to Jerusalem and spending no time in Galilee is in keeping with John's purpose in the Gospel of John. If you were here at the beginning of our series, I talked about how John's purpose in writing this Gospel is not to give an overview of the ministry of Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us a look at Jesus' ministry like that, right? They kind of show where he went, what he did, and they give us a nice overview of the whole thing. But John's purpose is not to do that. Rather, John is focusing on the crucial theological significance of Jesus' ministry. That's what John is consumed with. What he wants us to get when we read the Gospel of John, he wants us to get what is Jesus' What is his message? The prologue said that he came into the world as light into darkness. The prologue tells us he came into the world to reveal the Father and to reveal who God is. And so John is just focused on this revelation and this truth that Jesus brings. And John is interested in drawing out the central conflict Jesus experiences with the leaders in Israel over this truth. So the, the light comes into the darkness and we learn in this gospel that the darkness hates the light and there's conflict and there's strife over the truth. And you know, that hasn't changed today in the 21st century. There's still conflict and there's still strife over truth. You know, I, I read the news a lot. I read um, religious commentators in the news and these kind of things and it seems like people are just clueless about what's going on re- religiously. And I read a lot of these, you know, so-called religious experts, and they're always shaking their heads and wondering, isn't religion just about getting along, you know? Isn't religion just about being nice to your neighbor and everybody? Why can't Muslims and Jews and Christians and, you know, why can't everyone just hold hands and sing kumbaya? Why? Why cause conflict? Why cause strife? Why cause division? That's what sort of the, the religious experts are always saying, you know? But when we look at the Gospel of John and we see, what is Jesus all about? Well, John shows us. He's about bringing truth into the world. Jesus is not just about coming in and getting along with everybody, right? He's not just about, you know, let's just all get along and let's just all be nice. That's the point of religion. I won't ruffle any, you know, feathers here, make any waves. But that's exactly what he did. This is what John is looking at. And therefore, he focuses on Jesus within the religious nerve center of Israel, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is the stronghold of darkness. And Jerusalem is where the leadership of Israel guided the people in the ways of religion, and Jesus clashed with them. And so we are there in Jerusalem once again, looking at this clash. There's no miracle in the Gospel of John that is recorded simply for historical record. 
but all for their theological significance. And this miracle in chapter 5 is no different. It's shared because of its importance and its theological significance, and because, if you, if you read on in the chapter, because of this miracle and this incident, we have this amazing discourse of Jesus that follows, which we're going to look at next week. Jesus is back in Jerusalem, it says in verse 1, because of a feast, and it doesn't, John doesn't tell us which feast, and that's not important. That's why he doesn't tell us. It doesn't matter. Now look at verse 2. There was by the sheep gate a pool called Bethesda. It's interesting how um, the Bible has come under fire over the years. Because if the Bible is in fact true, that's a big problem for most people in this world. And so non-believers love to attack the Bible and say that it's not true. But it's interesting. uh, There's so many things in the Bible that confirm it. This sheep, this uh, pool by the sheep gate was um, only known through Scripture for thousands of years. And many Bible critics thought that the Bible was inaccurate here. And they said, you know, John is talking about a, a pool in Jerusalem. Well, we know of no pool in Jerusalem. There is no pool in Jerusalem like this. But it's interesting that in the 19th century, this pool was found by archaeologists, and now it's one of the well-attested sites in Jerusalem. There really was a pool in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, and it actually fits the description perfectly. There really was five porticos at this pool. Lots of sick people would go to this pool and gather there, according to verse 3. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles, and probably in most of your Bibles, the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 are in brackets. They're given as an explanation as to why the people gathered there. And it says here that the people would gather in this pool because an angel would come and stir up the waters. And the first person to dive in, oh, can you imagine what a mad a mad dash it would be, all these sick people, and once it starts stirring, they all just dive in. The first person apparently would be healed who would jump into the pool. The reason why this section is in brackets in your Bible is because, according to our best scholarship, this text is not actually in the original Gospel of John. So John did not write this section. It's not in our earliest or best manuscripts, and it's most probably just a marginal explanation. So a scribe who is transcribing or copying the Gospel of John at some point added that in to explain why these sick people were at the pool. Look at verse 7, which is part of the original. What this sick man says in verse 7 seems to require some sort of explanation. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So John records the man saying that, but it doesn't What's the explanation of this? And so someone felt the need to explain. Now, just because this uh, text is not part of the original Gospel of John doesn't necessarily mean that it's false. It could be a true report. Some scribe could have written down truly why people wanted to dive into the pool when the water was stirred up. So it may be the real or the popular explanation of what's going on. Even if it's the true or popular explanation, is it true? Was that really what was happening in Jerusalem at that pool? And I think, brothers and sisters, we can't know for sure. It could be that there was an angel that stirred up the waters, right? It could be that people were healed if they dove in when it was stirred up. That could be. It could also be superstition. There's other reasons why the water could be stirred up. could have been stirred up by an underwater fountain or something like that. And people believed that if you dove in, you were healed. And maybe there was some case of somebody getting healed and then people just started believing that. I really can't say whether there really was an angel that did it or whether it was superstitious. Either way, if you want to believe it, there was an angel or it was superstition, it doesn't change what follows. So our interpretation of what follows doesn't at all depend upon whether that report is true or not. 
Now in verse 5, we come to the main point. There was a man. There's a lot of sick people there. But we focus in on this one man. Why? Because Jesus focused in on him. And let's appreciate how bad his case was. He probably had paraplegia, meaning he couldn't use his legs. He may have had quadriplegia, which means he couldn't use his legs or his arms. The text tells us he couldn't walk. Jesus' miracle involved making him walk and being able to carry his mat. And he was there for almost 40 years. We don't know if he was a 60-year-old man who you know, lived perfectly fine for 20 years and then had an injury, or we don't know if he was born with this disease. But what we do know is that it was a miserable disease and he had it for a very, very long time. Could you imagine 40 years not being able to walk and whatever, whatever else symptoms come with that? Leo Tolstoy says that no disease suffered by a live man can be known. You know, we might say, well, he has this or he has that, but do we really understand what this person had and what this person have, had suffered? We don't. If you think this is some typical healing incident in the life of Jesus, then you need to think again. This miracle has got humor, irony, surprise, and it reveals the glory of God in a truly remarkable way. Look at verse 6 with me. Here's the first thing that changes for this man. When Jesus saw him lying there, So there's Jesus at this pool. We don't know why. And there's a whole bunch of sick people. But for some reason, Jesus sees this man lying there. That is a glorious, glorious fact for us to think about. Brothers and sisters, there is real hope for this world only because there's a God in heaven who sees our misery And seeing our misery, and even though he knows that our misery is a result of our sins, and even though he knows that our misery is deserved, and we really deserve so much worse than what we're getting, there's real hope for this world only because God sees us, notices us, and cares for us, despite the fact that we're sinners and that we deserve what we're getting. True? What if God never saw us? I think this is one of the glorious points of the whole Bible is that God sees, he looks, he cares, he notices, he looks down and doesn't just ignore or act indifferently toward us. And he could, couldn't he? Because we really don't deserve his care. It's not like he sees us and says, oh my goodness, I've been neglectful, right? (laughs) What have I done? (laughs) It's all my fault. But what he sees is, us languishing in our pain and in death, and it's our fault, but he cares. And I think this is a glorious statement to that truth. Jesus sees him lying there. Didn't have to, but this man's life changed only because Jesus saw and cared for him. We sang in that last song, though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control And what is that blessed assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate. That's why he shed his own blood for my soul. He first regarded us as being valuable to him. And he cared for you. So be encouraged this morning. God sees you. Do you believe that? Do you sometimes feel like he doesn't see you? He doesn't know your pain? He doesn't understand or he doesn't care? Well, he does. And the whole Bible testifies of that, and his death on the cross testifies that, that he cares about you, even if you deserve what you're getting. G. Campbell Morgan comments that, furthermore, the fact that Jesus healed him without being asked makes it the more remarkable in revealing his mission and the purpose of his heart. Jesus did not respond to this man. He initiated with this man, right? This is not like so many miracles where they called out, Jesus, have mercy on me, and then he turned and saw them. That happened. But in this case, it really reveals Jesus' heart because he wasn't responding at all. He was just initiating. He saw this man. 
and he came to him. Someone might ask, well, why did he not heal everybody else? Why just the man? I mean, Jesus heals him and then takes off, and there's a whole bunch of sick people that were there at this pool that weren't healed. And John doesn't give us any answer, and so no, no answer can be given except to rule out the idea that Jesus didn't care about the rest of the crowd. Amen? If we look at everything in Scripture together, we can't give an answer as to why Jesus didn't heal everybody, but we can say it wasn't because he didn't care about the rest. So the answer to that question is not found in the measure of Jesus' compassion, but in the wisdom of Jesus' purposes. And we just simply have to trust in God when we don't understand. Now, what do you think would have happened if that man had woken up that morning knowing that this was the day he was going to be healed? What kind of a morning would he have had, right? He would have been whistling. He would have been ecstatic. He would have, you know, get me to that pool on time, you know. He would have been really excited. He had no idea. He woke up totally clueless that that day he was going to be healed from a disease that he'd suffered with for 38 years. That man was locked into a false hope. And we see that in his answer to Jesus' pretty strange question, actually. Because Jesus walks up to him and he says this funny thing. Do you wish to get well? No. (laughs) Jesus asks him, do you wish to get well? Oh, of course he wants to get well, right? That's part of the reason why he's there at that pool. He's hoping that he can maybe roll in before somebody else jumps in. If he could even roll. So it's a funny question. Why would you ask somebody that? Some people think that Jesus is probing this man in a deeply psychological way. They think that this question is getting to the root of why people aren't healed because they really deep down subconsciously don't want to be healed. You know, do you really want to be healed or are you happy and content with being in that state for 38 years? You know, it's comfortable, it's familiar, you make money, be begging. Do you really want to be healed? So they think he's kind of probing like that, but I don't believe that's the case at all. I think rather that Jesus is criticizing the man's way or he's criticizing the way the man is falsely hoping. Because this man thinks that this is the only way that he's going to be healed. If I'm going to be healed, it's because i got to get somehow thrown into this pool. <laughs> and he's probably pretty depressed about it, like, I'm never going to get thrown into this pool. And that's his answer, right? His answer shows that he's locked into a false hope. Jesus says, do you want to get well? He says, what do you think? Of course I do, but there's no one here to help me. And if there's nobody here to help me, I'll never get well. I need to get tossed in here and no one's, no one's there. So his, I think his answer here is kind of cynical. It shows his perspective. And Jesus, I think, is destroying this, his false hope. By way of example, imagine a man who's desperately trying to cut down a tree with a butter knife. And he thinks this is the only way to cut it down. This is the only tool I have. Like, there's nothing else. And so he's desperately trying to cut down this tree with a butter knife. And I just imagine some guy with a chainsaw standing nearby and he says, do you want to cut down that tree? <laughs> you know, of course he wants to cut down the tree. But the question is like, that's not the way to cut down that tree. You know, if you really want to cut down that tree, here, let me show you how to cut down that tree. Here's a chainsaw. Let me do that for you. And that's the sense that I get here. Do you want to be well? I do. Well, there's, there's another way here. You know, this, this is a futile way. This way is just not going to work for you. It's a false hope. It's a dead end. You can hope in this your whole life. It's not going to happen. And the irony, brothers and sisters, and the humor of the situation is that even at this point, I mean, he woke up clueless. He's clueless even a second before he's healed, isn't he? A second before he's healed, he's clueless. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Later when the Pharisees ask him, you know, who healed you? He didn't even know. I don't know. And there's Jesus, the divine healer, standing before him saying, do you want to be well? He doesn't even know who he is. It's funny, actually. 
And he might even be defending himself to Jesus, like as if maybe Jesus is saying, do you want to be healed? Yes? Well, throw yourself into the water. I know that. (laughs) I believe that like this man, so many people in the world, they wake up clueless, they go to bed clueless, because they don't know who God is and what he can do for them. And they're frantically trying to cut down trees with butter knives. They're trying to secure their own good in all sorts of different ways that are ultimately false hopes. They're thinking, this is the only way it can be done. This is the only way. You know, so-and-so promised that if I did this, then I can secure my own good. But those ways are actually futile, and they end up in destruction. And all along, there's God, totally capable, totally powerful, totally able to bless them, and they just don't know, so they're totally clueless. And even when God starts asking, you really want to be blessed? Yeah, of course I'd want to be blessed. But they don't know what the real hope is. So this man is suddenly healed. Do you notice how quick the action is here? Look how quick the action is here. Jesus says about two word, you know, two sentences to him. Do you want to be healed? That's the first word he gets from this stranger. Sir, I can't get thrown in. Rise up and walk. It's so fast. It's so sudden. It's so unexpected and immediate. 38 years of sickness suddenly healed by Jesus' creative word to him. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing that could have prepared this man for this right? There's nothing that could have prepared him for this. And I just love this aspect of God's ways. Because here we see one of the ways of God that stuff can just happen out of your control. Zero preparation on your part. I love this. It gives me so much encouragement. Zero preparation on your part. No faith involved either, actually. God just showed up and healed him. Nothing depended on him. And God can do things, I hope you believe this, God can do things in your life or the life of others that doesn't depend on them at all in any way, shape, or form. So we ought not to think that because we are saved through faith, and that is true, There is only one way to be saved, and that's through faith. But we ought not to think that because we are saved through faith, it follows that God can do nothing apart from faith. True? God is not bound. Some people will say this. They'll say God is completely bound and shackled and can't do anything unless people let him. Have you ever heard that? Unless we give him permission, unless we enable unless we prepare, unless we meet conditions. And here we see, like many places in the Bible, no, not true. Yes, we're saved through faith. If you don't believe, you can't be saved. But God can do things like this, and it's a wonderful encouragement to us. It enables us to live with anticipation and expectation. God can always do his work. What hope there is in God, brothers and sisters, God has ability beyond any of our human limitations and he can work in any human circumstances. So the first lesson we should learn from this text is to give up our false hopes and always only think that what, what humans are capable of doing is the only thing that can be done. Let us trust in God and put our hope in him. Secondly, We've looked at the sick man's hope, false hope, concerning the way of obtaining his cure. Now I'd like to look at the sick man's false hope concerning his soul. So far I've talked about false hope, but I've not yet talked about the most dangerous kind of false hope. And that's what we're going to see now. The healing, it is said, took place on the Sabbath. Jesus was not unaware of that, of course. It's not that Jesus kind of said, oh, Whoops, that was the Sabbath, right? In fact, I think Jesus was fond of making a special point of healing on the Sabbath. He would often heal because it was the Sabbath. And then he'd put the challenge to those people and say, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, right? 
But the man is accosted because in the first century and, and today, the, the leaders of Israel had worked out their theology and they believed that um, a person was not to carry any load on the Sabbath. So carrying one's pallet or one's mat was totally off limits. And so he's accosted by the Jews when they see this man carrying his pallet. The man shifts blame to Jesus, even though he didn't know who Jesus was. He says, the guy told me to. So he doesn't want to get in trouble with the authorities. And you know, that would have been the end of it. That would have been the end of it if Jesus hadn't have sought this man out again, right? Because he didn't know who he was, so that conflict would have been over. But what we see here is that Jesus finds the man out again. Verse 14. So Jesus isn't finished with this guy. And verse 14 is an incredibly important verse. And there's a very important detail in this verse, and that is where he finds the man. Have you ever noticed that? He finds him not just walking down the street, but it says in verse 14 that afterwards Jesus found him in the temple. So what we see here is this man was not an irreligious man. He wasn't the kind of guy who, because he was sick, had thrown away religion. A lot of people do that, and that wasn't him. He was a religious man. He was observant like most people. What was he doing in the temple? He was probably giving thanks to God for his healing. He was probably practicing Judaism as he was taught to practice it. The way the leaders instructed the people, that's what he was doing. And all seems well. You'd think he's healed, he's religious, he's in the temple, he's thanking God, he's doing the things he's supposed to do. What's, this is all good. And then Jesus drops a bombshell on him. Imagine hearing this from Jesus. What do we think we'll hear from Jesus? People, people think they'll hear from Jesus if he, if he was here. Well, a lot of people might hear this, right? We don't think about this too often. You are well. Or are you? We are physically well. But according to Jesus, you're not yet really well. Sin... Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That's a warning. That's a warning of something worse than 38 years with a terrible, debilitating disease. Jesus often warns us because he cares. Now, there's lots of different ways people understand this saying of Jesus. And I'd like to put forth three ways that this could be understood that I think are you know, the ones that are either common or plausible. First of all, a lot of people think that what Jesus is saying to this man is as follows. The reason why you were sick for 38 years is because of some sin that you had committed. And God was punishing you for that sin. Now, if you don't stop that sin, then some worse physical punishment is going to come upon you. Some more horrid temporal punishment will befall you if you don't cut out that which caused your sickness in the first place, whatever sin that might have been. A lot of people take this verse that way. I don't believe this is the way to take this verse. There is no indication that this man was truly right with God. In fact, there's a lot of indication in the text that he wasn't right with God. And therefore, it is true that this man was under condemnation. This man was still subject or exposed to the wrath and the judgment of God. It's marvelous as a Christian to not be exposed to that anymore. Amen? So there's no indication that that man had passed from death to life. That he was out of that. So he was subject to judgment still. 
But I don't believe we're right in understanding this warning to be about temporal punishment. First of all, it is hard to imagine a much worse temporal punishment. Now, it's not impossible. There conceivably is some physical punishment that could have been worse, right? Don't commit any more sin, or I'm going to send you 48 more years of that disease and throw in ulcers as well, right? So whatever, you can come up with what it, there is worse. But I think that while this is a possible idea that God will judge this guy with a worse physical punishment, I think we're going the wrong way when we go down that road and we miss the point of what Jesus is, Jesus is saying and the context in, with which Jesus is saying it. I think the context is shown in this man and what he's doing in the temple. You know, he's already a religious guy and after his healing, he's picking up with the status quo, right? He's healed, he's in the temple, he's following the Jewish leaders, he doesn't want to be in trouble with them. You kind of see that in the context, and as we're going to see in the next, uh, next week in verse 15, he goes back to the religious leaders after he realizes it's Jesus, he tells them it's him. doesn't necessarily mean he's trying to be a bad guy, but he's still locked in, I think, to the, to the leaders in Israel. They are still his guides. They are still his, his light and darkness. They are still his leader. And as we even look further in the context, Jesus will proceed to talk at length about himself and what he came into the world to do. And if you look with me at verse 25 of chapter 5, Jesus is going to say this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good, to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In the context, Jesus is thinking of something far worse than 38 years of not being able to walk. Here we see a greater miracle than just saying, arise and walk. He's saying, arise to the dead. And they are, they are raised from the dead to judgment. So there's a far greater miracle that Jesus has in view. There's a far greater health and wellness that Jesus has in view here. There's a far greater punishment that Jesus, I believe, has in view here. And so I agree with the theologian D.A. Carson who said, the something worse must be final judgment. Jesus is not just threatening this guy with 38 more years of sickness. He's saying, if something doesn't fundamentally change with you, then there's going to be something far worse than any physical disease that could ever ail you. I said there was three ways we can interpret this verse 14. And so this leads us to the second and third way, which really have, are, they're, they're basically saying the same thing in a little bit of a different way. They both have solid merit. I was actually talking with Brad earlier about this, and we were... We were agreeing on these uh, two views. So the second view is that Jesus could be here simply preaching the law to this man in all of its weight. And he could be saying, if you don't stop sinning, and I don't mean some particular sin that you've committed that brought upon some physical illness. I mean, stop sinning completely, sin no more, or something worse is going to come upon you. He's not giving the man any hope. He's not giving the man the gospel. He's just sharing with him the reality of the law, the very thing the Pharisees didn't share with this man. So he, preach, he could be preaching the law to him in order to lead him to despair and to give up his false hope in himself. The other thing, the other way we could read this is that Jesus is preaching faith to this man and that the sin of this man 
that he needs to give up is the sin of following the Pharisees in their perversion of righteousness and of religion. He's saying going along with these authorities is sin because it's not listening to the law. It's not listening to the truth. It's not taking seriously what God has said, and that's evil. Don't do that anymore. Turn from that or something worse is going to happen to you. And in, in essence, he's, he's commanding this man to get a new mind. He's commanding this man to get a new perspective, one that isn't perverted. So either way, whether Jesus is preaching law or whether Jesus is preaching true faith to this man, in both cases, Jesus is confronting his false hope concerning his soul. I think when Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? It's not wrong for us to ask the question, how well is Jesus thinking? You know, when Jesus sees this man, not only 38 years sick with a disease, but also locked into a false hope, locked into false religion, locked into following the Pharisees. And he might ask him, do you want to get well in a more profound sense than merely or only just his body? What was the man thinking when he heard that? Do you want to get well? It's probable all the man was thinking of was just his physical body, right? Because that's his only problem, right? In his mind, you know, I'd be, I'd be set here if I just didn't have this disease. Everything would be okay if I just didn't have this disease. But if this man was a normal Jew, brothers and sisters, in the first century, if he wasn't an irreligious person or he wasn't some odd, abnormal man, if he was a normally observant, religious, devout Jew, he probably didn't think that his soul was sick. He probably thought he was righteous. And you know, there is even a kind of self-righteousness that can come with being sick. True? Because one can, can think to themselves, yeah, you know, I'm sick. I got a bad straw. Um, most people aren't sick like me, but, but even though I'm sick and I have it really bad, I'm still faithful to God. Right? And there can come a, a self-righteousness with being sick if we're not careful. If you think your soul is well, but you're not a Christian, and you're not hoping in Christ, then you might very well think that the worst thing that you're dealing with is maybe some physical circumstance. And you might go through life thinking, man, if I could just fix this, all would be well. But if you're a Christian, on the other hand, you may be 38 years with a disease, right? You may have all sorts of physical circumstances that are going wrong, but if your soul is right through Jesus Christ, then you can sing what we sang, it is well with my soul, amen? This isn't the worst thing that could happen to me, right? There's something far greater that I have, and I don't need to despair. The fact of the matter is, if this man was following the Pharisees, and he was following their teaching concerning righteousness, and here's the fact of the matter, he would be damned if he continued to follow status quo religion in the first century. Now, what was the teaching of the Pharisees regarding righteousness? The Pharisees taught very clearly and truly that in order for a person to inherit eternal life and to enter into the kingdom of God and not be damned, They needed to be righteous. They were absolutely right in teaching that. And we affirm that as Christians who believe in the Bible. If you want to be saved and if you want to, after you die, be resurrected in the resurrection of the righteous, well, you need to be righteous. The Bible proclaims that death is not the end for each person. The Bible proclaims that there's going to be a resurrection of all people and there's going to be a judgment day. This is what we look forward to. This is what we understand is coming. So it's an absolute lie from the pit of hell that death is the end. It's not the end. Judgment day is coming and the Jews knew this. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in those who would be resurrected righteous, those who would be resurrected unrighteous. And they said, you need to be righteous. And we agree with them. So far, so good. But the Pharisees continued to teach this. Technically... There is only one way to be righteous. There is only one way to be right. There's not many ways, there's one. And that way 
is the way of personal obedience to the commandments of God. There's only one way to be righteous. You need to turn away from your sins, turn away from disobeying God and living in a disobedient state, and you need to become obedient. And we're doing that, the Pharisee said. We're leading that. We're holding up the torch. We're calling people to repentance. If you want to be righteous, it must be by your works. It must be by you changing and doing the things that you're supposed to do. There is no forgiveness from God. There is no salvation for you unless you meet the conditions of righteousness in your behavior and in your works. So come, be circumcised, keep the law, keep the commandments. We'll teach you how to do that. We'll get you there. Now there's an extremely important caveat to the Pharisees' teaching of righteousness. Extremely important. You can read this in their own writings. It was understood that nobody was perfect. Do we all get that, right? It's understood universally that nobody is perfect. I mean, you go out and you ask anybody, are you perfect? No. Maybe some crazy person might say that, right? But most, 99.9% of everyone in this world, especially if they're devoutly religious or whatever, they'll say, I'm not perfect. Yes, I sin. That's true. And the Pharisees understood that. Nobody's perfect. All had sinned. You know, there's even verses in the Bible that says that no one's perfect and we've all sinned. What do they do with that? And in the light of this teaching of theirs, you have to be righteous by personal obedience to the commands. And nobody is perfect. Their conclusion is this. You don't have to be perfect, right? It's okay that nobody's perfect. God doesn't expect it. That would be cruel and wrong of God to expect perfection of us. We can't do that. And so they preached that righteousness was something less than perfection in God's sight. You don't have to be perfect. The standard isn't too far above you. As long as you're trying, as long as you're striving, as long as you avoid these big sins and make up for your little sins by crying a little bit, praying a lot, going to synagogue, going to temple. You know, you know, you don't have to be perfect. Just don't commit these ones. These ones over here, you know, fornication or drunkenness or, you know, that stuff, if you do that, you're toast. But if you don't do that, your little sins will be looked over as long as you're kind of, you're still trying and going to church and these kind of things. Now, does this sound familiar to you? It should sound familiar because, brothers and sisters, that is the very same thing that is taught by the majority of the religions in the world today. That's what the Jews still teach today. That's what the Muslims teach today. That's what Catholics teach today. That's what the Eastern Orthodox teach today. That's what the Mormons teach today. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. You'll find that even in Hinduism. You'll find it in Buddhism. You'll find it in Taoism. You can't go anywhere and not find that except Christianity. It should sound familiar. And maybe if you're here this morning and you thought that is the truth, you're thinking, what are you talking about, Eli? That sounds pretty darn good. I mean... Doesn't that uphold righteousness? Doesn't that mean, isn't that what the Bible teaches? The answer is absolutely no. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. That's what the Pharisees taught, and they clashed with Jesus. It's the same teaching in different garb. It puts one's hope in oneself. It lowers the standard from what it really is. And it is a denial of Jesus Christ. It's an absolute denial of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we proclaim together to the world that that is a false hope. If you are hoping in that, if you're approaching Judgment Day and you're thinking, you know, I know I'm not perfect, But how can God demand perfection? I mean, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I go to church. I give money. I I don't commit the big sins. So I'm going to be okay. If that's what you think, you're in a false hope. That is the most dangerous kind of false hope a person can have. And you will be damned if you approach Judgment Day hoping in yourself like that. So as Christians, we proclaim to the world that that is sin, thinking like that. That is perverted and it is not true. Do not sin anymore or something worse will happen to you. We proclaim that. 
And I want to make that very clear this morning. You'll go to hell if you believe that. Which brings me to my last point this morning, and that is the place of real hope. Now in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes this entire letter to combat this very false teaching. So this is not Eli preaching this, okay? If you don't like what I'm saying, it's not me preaching. It's not Eli's off his rocker, Eli's crazy, or I don't like what Eli has to say. It's what the Bible teaches, and you can go read Galatians, and Paul is dealing with this exact thing. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says that I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ died for nothing. What Paul is saying is, if you could be righteous and meet the standard by what you do, by trying, by going to church, by not committing the big five, you know, if you could be righteous and God says, I accept that, Christ died for nothing. You don't need Jesus, apparently. You pass. You get in on judgment day. He evaluates your behavior and says, you did it. If righteousness could come by the law, Christ died for nothing. But what Paul is saying here is rhetorical. No, righteousness does not come by the law, and Christ did not die for nothing. And here's the reality, and you can read about this in the Law of Moses in plain sight. You can read about this in the prophets and in the apostles, and you can read about this in Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. The righteousness, brothers and sisters, that God requires is perfection. Don't lower that standard and think that God has lowered standards than that when he clearly says he does not. The righteousness that he requires, the standard is perfection. Perfection of what? Perfection of love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor just as you love yourself. You see, this is a standard that we all agree with, but none of us do, right? Now, is there anyone here that doesn't agree that we should you don't agree that we should perfectly love God and our neighbor, right? We would all agree that that is a good thing. That is the standard. We should do no wrong to one another. We should do good to one another. We should not sin against God. We should not sin against one another ever. And the Bible proclaims that is the standard that God has given because that is the nature of God. See, God is not giving an arbitrary standard. It's not just some standard he made up one morning. But this is who God is. He himself is perfect. He himself is righteous. He himself is totally holy. And he therefore requires perfection of love. By violating this law, something we do every day when we don't love God and when we don't love our neighbor, and when we violate this in innumerable ways, all the time, By violating his law and by violating this good standard, we deserve the wrath of God because it's just. You deserve to be punished because you don't do the good that you know you should do and that I don't do the good that I know that I should do. And so the Bible warns us of this worst thing that will happen to us if we're not righteous. There's a resurrection, Jesus said, of the unjust unto damnation. There's a punishment called hell that we will receive if we are not righteous before God on judgment day. And we can't be righteous through our own works. We cannot be righteous by trying to clean our life up. It's like trying to throw yourself into the pool. It's just not going to work. And now here is the good news that we proclaim as Christians. And it's unspeakable good news. Even though God is transcendent in righteousness, even though he's holy and he is pure and he can't tolerate any sin whatsoever because he hates sin with a passion, he hates your not loving your neighbor, even though God is totally transcendent and even though we are full of wickedness and evil, God saw us in our misery and he cared for us. That's the beautiful gospel 
that we proclaim. It's good news. Yes, we proclaim you deserve to go to hell. Yes, we proclaim you're no good. Yes, we proclaim you're evil and you're wicked and you deserve punishment. But we also proclaim that God sees you and cares about you and doesn't want you to perish. And he descended into our filth 2,000 years ago in history in Jesus Christ, the man, the God who became man. He descended into our filth to die upon a Roman cross In the year 33 AD, he substituted himself in our place and he took all of our sins that we've committed past, the sins we're committing right now as you're listening to me, the sins that we will commit in the future to the rest of your life. All of our unrighteousness, the scripture proclaims, was laid upon Jesus and he bore our sins and he bore God's punishment and he bore God's wrath in our place so that we don't have to so that we can be forgiven, and so that we can be free. He did that for you and for I, you and for me. And God is satisfied with that sacrifice, friends. That's the beautiful message, is that God is satisfied to accept what Jesus did, so that you don't have to add to that. You don't have to, it's not deficient. It's not like he died and he kind of opened the door so that now if you do your part and keep the commandments again and blah, 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 God is totally satisfied with what his son has done and what he has done is enough to present you before God righteous and blameless in his sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. He was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead. Jesus is currently alive and he offers to every single person the forgiveness of sins through his death and his sacrifice. It's a glorious message we proclaim. Whoever believes in him, the Bible says, is washed from all of their sins by his blood. And we are saved not by our works, not by our personal obedience, not by trying, not by cleaning up our lives, not by going to church, giving money, not by avoiding the five big sins. We are saved through Jesus Christ and him alone through what he did for us. We trust in him. He is our hope, not ourselves. Whoever believes will enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life, will be raised from the dead righteous, just as Jesus said in John 3.16, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And friends, this is the real hope in this world. This is the real hope that's true even in the face of death. We don't need to be distracted or deluded with false hopes anymore because we have the true hope that's founded not upon human effort and human ability and human fancies, but upon Christ. And that hope does not disappoint. The world, by virtue of it being a fallen place, is full of false hopes, bad surprises, failed expectations, Some of these false hopes are trivial, like you got the hair dye wrong. Some of these false hopes are more serious, like you didn't get out when you should have and you lost your life. But there's a false hope that's even more dangerous than them all, and you don't want to be wrong about this. You might be wrong about the hair dye. You might even perish physically because of an error. But you don't want to be in a false hope about your soul, my friends. You don't want to be wrong about that. The only place of solid hope is in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin. You trust in him, and your feet are on solid ground. You will not be disappointed. So don't be like this man who was clueless. You know, the hope is there for you. The hope is there for each person. And sadly, so many people miss it because they're just totally ignorant and clueless of who Jesus is and what he can do for you, right? Don't be like this man who believes in the, in the, in the teaching of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, which, which is perpetuated today in so many religions. Don't follow those leaders who lead you away from what Jesus has taught in the Bible. It's a false hope. Don't think that, oh, if only I keep the commandments to the best of my ability, I'll be saved. No, it's false. But believe in him, lose the false hope, and believe in the true hope, which is Christ. Please stand with me.
Father in heaven, we, we cannot say the right words to express what you have done for us. We're thankful. We would have no hope unless you had, you had seen us and cared for us. And we thank you for your grace, for treating us in a way we don't deserve. Lord, as we take the, the symbols of your body and of your blood this morning, help us to remember that incredible sacrifice, that substitutionary sacrifice, that horrible death that you died. Not just a physical death merely, but enduring God, your displeasure, your wrath, your punishment against sin. Help us to remember that this morning, to see your love in it, to see your justice in it, to see our hope in it. And Father, I pray that for those who are not are not believers yet in the true hope, who are still exposed to your judgments and your wrath, I pray this would be the day that they believe and that they receive your salvation. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible good news. And we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.